Roxo Media House. Welcome back to Fortitude, everybody. Your host, J.W. Wilson, with my co-host, Brenton Payne. The summer doldrums are upon us. Uh, Brenton, question for you. Well, Meanwhile, before I, before I ask you the question, uh, welcome back to Captex Bank Studios. Thank yes. you, Captex, for providing all this wonderful stuff. I ate lunch uh, with Mike the other day. How He's was our he? sponsor, Mike Thomas, with oh, Captex Bank. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Mike's a great storyteller, Good. as you well know. Thank you, Mike and Captex. But Brenton, my question for you is we've had many really interesting people come on this show. People like Opal Lee, Chief Noakes, a double amputee cop, Danny Colson, CEOs, FBI guys, Yogi, mayors, entrepreneurs. Uh, today might be the top of the top of the pyramid for us. Um, the guy sitting to your left, uh, one Chris Cassidy. Chris Cassidy, thank you for coming. Welcome to the, welcome to Fortitude. Oh, my, yeah. my pleasure. Glad to be Thanks here. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Let's see if we get a little applause going. That's the train. Oh, that's though. the train. We'll fix that in the post. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chris Cassidy is a retired U.S. Navy SEAL. He's He was retired chief NASA astronaut, an Ironman, and is currently the president and CEO of the Medal of Honor Museum in Arlington, Texas. Did I, did I forget anything? Nope, that's, that's it. Quite you got a bit, it. Quite a bit. Um, let's start at the beginning because the story is, needs to be told, and it's a phenomenal story. I've... I met you several months ago, and luckily you're nice enough to join us, and you're involved in a lot of really cool stuff. So let's get into it with your permission. Oh, let's do it. Yeah, thanks for being here. Salem, Mass., where you're born, you're born uh, correct, your childhood before all the really interesting pertinent stuff happens, but what's what's your childhood like? Yeah, so I was born in, in Salem. Um, at uh, I was about three years old, I guess, when, when we moved to Maine. So I really consider myself a Mainer, grew up... Uh, a little bit in, in a town uh, called Bath, Maine, a little further north of Portland, and then mm-hmm. Bath uh, Ironworks. Bath Ironworks, exactly. My yeah. my father had a restaurant uh, right there by Bath, Bath Ironworks, and mm-hmm. I remember it was pretty cool as a as a kid to have your family have a restaurant. You 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 could get anything you want. You get mm-hmm. as many free sodas <laughs> as you as you wanted. Your parents were always at work, so you were there with them after school. Uh, it was fun. And then, um, and then we moved uh, sub to a very southern corner of Maine, town, little town called York, just over the Brits from Portsmouth, Hampshire. And I was in fifth grade, and uh, so that was really the form my formative years there, fifth grade through high school graduation, mm-hmm. first job, first you know, car, all that stuff, right, yeah. right there in, in York. Normal childhood, Chris. Totally normal childhood. As my, I have a younger brother. He's three years younger, exactly the same birthday. Um, in, in January 4th. So we, we have this standing pack that we don't give each other presents and it's, it's oh, been cool. a good, 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 uh, good bargain to have throughout the years. But anyways, yeah, we just always grew up liking sports. Yeah. That was the main focus of when I was a, a youth. I mean, I always mm-hmm. had a ball of some kind in my hand or our car, or, or we went on family vacations. We, we made sure we had something to throw mm-hmm. around and quarterback. I was a quarterback. Yep. And, um, Played baseball and basketball. I really liked basketball. In fact, um, I knew I didn't have the talent to make it to the NBA, but I I wanted I shifted that enthusiasm for the game to being a basketball referee. Mm-hmm. That's where I really wanted to do when I grew up was was yeah. to be a, a college and then potentially professional NBA ref. Um, we're glad that didn't work out for you, yeah. by the way. Yeah, yeah. Celtics and Patriots. Is that, oh, all is that, the way. Yeah, yeah, I had posters of uh, Bird, Parish, McHale, Ainge, and DJ on my wall yep. in, in that era. 
when it was this huge Lakers-Celtics rivalry and the Pistons and the bad boys, all that stuff. That was my, the prime of my youth in yeah. terms of sports fan. And the Patriots, back then, they were horrible. Steve Grogan was a quarterback. Tony Eason, some of right. these names. But um, uh, So I've been a Patriots fan all through the years when they were bad and all the way through um, the, these times. Um, but, yeah, totally, totally normal childhood. Yeah. So yeah. how – anybody in the family military? No. No. Uh, my, my dad was drafted in, in the Marines in Vietnam. He did maybe two years um, – but that was that was it. So um, I, I I tell the story of how I got interested in the military. Yeah. When I was in high school, looking for ways, looking for colleges, and then also how to pay for college because we didn't have a ton of money. You know, it was it was a factor to to you know the the financing part of school. And I remember we would always watch the Army Navy football game. Yeah. And skin sharp looking men and women march onto the field in the little um 30 second snippets of army and navy life that they have during the game um i just thought that was super cool even when i was young and then fast forward to when i was a uh, in junior and senior in high school i mean you guys may may remember but before the internet days you go to the ca- guidance counselor's office and you thumb through a giant book yeah looking at schools yeah and i got to the page with like super glossy photos of the the Severn River, which is Annapolis, and the buildings and the people. And I thought, ah, that's the football game I always watch. That's mm-hmm. that's super cool. Down at the bottom, it says, it's free to go here. You just have to be in the Navy. I'm like, okay, that's right up my alley. Yeah, I didn't know what be in the Navy meant at, as a junior in high school or a senior, but I didn't care. I was like, okay, that's fine. That sounds cool. That'd be interesting. And uh, it takes care of the funding aspect of it. And um, so I started the path to to get to apply, and this is a, a key part of my story that, or of my development really as a person, is the path that got me to Annapolis. Um, so it's it's a two phased application. You have to apply to the school, and to your congressional district. And I read about the congressional district, but nobody was guiding me, and in my naive brain, I didn't quite piece together the the school part. So I just applied to the congressman's office and and got uh, uh, asked to come to an interview. I went to the state capitol in Maine and in Augusta and did the interview. And the lady said, oh, "Good job, you know, um, we'll take it from here." And I remember asking her, like, "So you don't need anything else from me?" And she said, "No, no, we we got it. You did great. We'll forward your name on to the academy." So I didn't do it. The whole other part, unbeknownst to me, that was a problem. And uh, so that was the fall of my senior year. Fast forward to the spring of my senior year in high school, and everybody's getting the thick envelope or the thin envelope yeah. for rejection. And I was getting it from other places, but not there. And uh, finally, I couldn't take it, and I I, I called the admissions office. And and uh, sorry for the long story, but no, this, no, is, this is a good one. Uh, I call the admissions office and ex- explain my situation, and the lady goes, "Oh, okay. What's where are you from?" And I tell her, "She's oh, okay." I hear rummaging through files. What's your name? I tell her more files. Can you spell your name? More files. What's your social security number? More files. I'm sorry. We have nothing on you. You're not even in our system. This is in like April of my senior year in high school. And I think, Oh my God, this is not what I want. You're about to be a referee. Maybe I'm about to be a referee. And, but as all things happen, luck, whatever your view is, divine intervention. I don't know. But, um, 
my friend's dad had planned a business trip from Maine to Washington, D.C. It's like an eight-hour drive. And my buddy and I were going to go with his dad the next week, which was our spring vacation. And so I did that as part of the plan. And, and then the only change was one afternoon I drove from D.C. over to Annapolis, like 30 minutes away, and went to the admissions office and walked in. And the same lady, I recognized her voice. And she said, oh, you're the young man from Maine. Yeah, you yeah. got to go uh, see Captain Melillo. He's down the hall, third door on the right. You can't miss him. He's He has New England as his territory. He'll take care of you. So I marched down the hall, turned the corner, third door on the right, and there is this, like, stereotypical Marine Corps poster child. Mm. Perfect uniform, shoes you see, your, your reflection in, yeah. rigid as a board, posture, haircut, the whole nine-yard square jaw. And uh, I'm like, oh, boy. And uh, <laughs> I remember thinking, well... This is my chance. I got to tell him my story. So I told him my story, and I could tell he's looking at me like, every other kid got their things in on time. What the yeah. hell's wrong with you, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, uh, um, but I, so I told him the total time in his office, five or six minutes, and he very patiently listened and goes, okay, I understand. I'll get back to you. The whole ride back to Maine, I thought, well, at least I tried. You know, I can live with myself that I tried, but yeah. certainly the Naval County is not in the cards for me well just a couple days later i get paged to the main office in school for a phone call i go down there the secretary hands me the phone and she says some i don't know who it is somebody from the navy so i pick up the phone and he says hey cassidy it's captain malillo i got good news i can get you into the naval academy prep school but i need an answer like right now on the phone is that what you want and i didn't know what the prep school was where it was what it meant what time and commitment it was but I knew that that was the door that's open one time and it was shutting. Uh, okay, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. I'm in. Turns out the prep school is a year in Newport, Rhode Island. If you do, uh, if you meet the standards, you get automatic admission to the Naval Academy. And the reason that story is so fundamental to me, because that gentleman, Captain Malillo, didn't know me, never saw me again, but he gave me the chance. If, if he didn't see something or believe in me mm-hmm. in just that moment in time, and give me an opportunity. We, you guys, and we wouldn't be talking right now yeah. today. I, you know, I'd be a washed up, you know, Division three basketball ref. <laughs> um, and but because of him, and I, I like this story because any one of us mm-hmm. can be Captain Malillo any day, you know, or you can be set somebody up that you didn't even know you were going to have that interaction on that. Let me ask day. you something. You think if you had done that whole thing over a Zoom call? It would have been the same. Or no, the the face to face did. Something. It was standing there right in front of him. He knows this kid drove for. He didn't know my buddy's dad and I had a plan already. Yeah. But he in his mind like this kid drove eight hours to be here and he's in front of me. He means it. He's serious. Mm-hmm. I could tell he's not a complete idiot, partial anyways, <laughs> but not complete. Uh, maybe maybe there's something there. To close the loop. My wife has heard me say this story like tens and tens of times over yeah. over my career. And uh, and I'd never met him. And um, in 2020, right before my last launch, we were having a launch party for my friends and family in Boston. And, um, and we had planned it for several months. And I didn't know this, but she looked him up and found him. And there was a whole story oh, wow. of how she tracked him down. And he didn't mm-hmm. believe it was real. She had to involve another friend of mine in the military who was in the Pentagon and who had to convince him it was a real thing. Mm-hmm. And so she invited him. He and his wife came, and we're in this room with 250 of my 
closest friends and I knew everybody except one face. I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, who the heck's that guy? Throughout the evening, I'm trying to get to him, but my wife and my other buddy kept cutting yeah. me off. And because at the, towards the end of the evening, I stood up and said words and, and thanked everybody for being there. And, uh, and as I was telling that story, the one I just told you that said, because of this gentleman, Cap Malillo, None of us would be gathered here today for a pre-launch party. And that's when my wife interrupted and said, hey, excuse me, uh, Mike Malilla, will you please stand up? And so I, that was the first time 30 years later I got Man. to see him, shake his hand. That him. is so cool. And he said, you know, honestly, I didn't remember it. it, it I was just another just another day in my life. And, mm -hmm. and I had a couple, one or two of those things a year in my hip pocket I could use. So amazing story and so fundamental for me because now, particularly after I'm now, I've flown in space i can be captain my little for others mm -hmm. and so it's really yeah. nice yeah that's great that is a that wonderful is that, yeah. awesome story thank you for sharing that so obviously you get in the naval academy you're doing you're, you're going through that academy stuff then you go and do your sir your service right three years yeah after the after the fact it's five but five yeah. years mm -hmm. where, where all did you see in that time where did you visit across the world? Well, five turned into 28. You know, I stayed, right. I just retired from the, from the Navy yep. recently. But those initial five years, I, that's all I thought I was going to do. Mm -hmm. um, the first year after graduation, um, I was in SEAL training called BUDS, BUDS? out in San Diego, oh, yeah. Coronado, California. That's a underwater demolition. Yeah, basic underwater demolition school, yep. SEAL. Um, and How hard was that? Oh, it's not so bad. No, it really sucks. Like, I mean, it, was it the the to this point? Like, with all of your where you are with everything, was it the hardest? It was in terms. Of, so there's a huge physical component, right? Like, but that's obvious when you look at it. You got to do all these push-ups. You got to run all the time. You yeah. got to lift logs on top of your head and paddle boats and do all these things that push you to your physical limits. And that's mm -hmm. the job of the instructors. But what you don't know, at least for me and most of us, when you enter in. You just think of purely physical and you're constantly thinking, okay, I got to do all these, um, you know, calisthenics and things. But the purpose of all of that is to push you to your mental limit. Mm -hmm. And um, the takeaway from SEAL training is you're, there is a limit to every single one of us, physical and mental. And, but that's when you help each other. And that's when good teammates reach out because when you break is a different time than when I break and you break. Mm -hmm. And together we can support each other mutually and get through it. But if we all try to go through individually, we're all going to fail at just maybe different times, but eventually yeah. we'll fail. And so that's the, the key, the crux of it. And you don't know that when you're starting out as a brand new guy, you're just like, ah, more pull-ups. Mm -hmm. um, but I remember very distinctly sitting on the beach. Hell week is a week long, Sunday to Friday, Wednesday, Wednesday, into the evening, the sun's setting and I'm freezing. We're sitting on the beach eating a cold MRE with sand in it and all nasty. And I'm just looking at the sun setting going, oh man, this is just lousy. I, didn't, I wasn't really thinking about quitting, but I was just feeling really sorry for myself. Like, yeah. This is, what am I doing? Um, and my buddy right next to me nudged me and said, hey, you know, I don't even know what he said. Maybe can I have your cheese or something? Yeah. But it's pulled me back out. Yeah. From where I was drifting to. And, and he did that for me. And I think I probably did it for somebody else along the way. Mm -hmm. So it's really about getting through it together, which is applicable to life, right? Like sure. We all have hard times. Yeah. Yeah. You can, with all that you've been through, not getting too far ahead, was that part of your life, is that considered one of the most physically enduring um, training regimens ever? Is it comparable for, to space? 
the going through Navy SEAL stuff? Oh, it's complete apples to oranges. Like right. you, there's tiny bit of physical aspect to space flight, particularly when you're coming back, and we can talk about that right. later. Um, but the by far that was the most physically intense period. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sometime in the midst of this, I think prior, but you you went to MIT for for a little stint and got your master's. Yeah. So I was driving underwater vehicles called Seal Delivery Vehicles (SDVs) for the. You have no problem with claustrophobia. It's very apparent. No, I, I I don't mind. No, yeah. I mean because aren't those things super tight spaces? Too? Yeah, they're tight. You close you you're. It's not like a dry submarine you picture. It's this flooded submersible. So you're wearing scuba gear. You sit down in it. You close the door, and you so you're in surrounded by water, driving through the water column. And I did that for four years and loved every bit of it. And um, and and I knew that I would like to go to grad school at some point in my life. And um, uh, I hadn't really got the astronaut bug at this point in time. I was just kind of exploring graduate school engineering. And then it dawned on me, like, oh, I have all this underwater vehicle time. Maybe there's schools that that um, have underwater vehicle programs. And sure enough, MIT had a great one. And um, I remember thinking, I, I really need to leverage this experience in my application because I don't think, you know, I was a good student, but yeah. not like what you think of an MIT yeah. student. Were you going to go to Woods Hole and go and study kind of underwater life? Was so that kind of goal? MIT has a partnership with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, mm-hmm. and my I wasn't there. There's an MIT Woods Hole joint program. I wasn't in that, but my advisor w- had professorships in both places, so I did my, all of my research down in Falmouth. Yeah, yeah. Could you explain to the to layperson, which is still us, uh, underwater vehicle? Like, what's the what's the the goal and the, the precision, and then the 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 goals and those things are you trying to deliver people to certain places in the world that are not wanted to do yeah. things is that the purpose of these so vehicles there are multiple missions uh particularly in the seals you're talking about yes. yeah um multiple missions one of them is as you described so so it's about 20 feet long you can google it stv seal delivery vehicle there's a compartment in the front for the driver pilot and navigator and a compartment in the back where folks can sit um, are they sitting or are they like laying back? You're like, kind of all smushed in there. Yeah. Um, it, you know, you're right in top. You're in the lap of the guy in front of you and, and as you're sitting there. But it's not like the Nemo ride at Disney World. It is not like, like the Nemo yeah. ride at Disney World. <laughs> and the water is not a balmy 90 degrees. You yeah. know, you're perfectly clear on a starry night. Yeah. You're going into harbors, which are murky and dark. It's dark of night. So usually you can't see anything. Um, but one mission set is to deliver people from the back and it's a great way to get folks in. Like if you go by helicopter, generally the bad guys can hear the helicopter mm-hmm. and, or see, see yeah. them on radar. If you parachute in, uh, that's a pretty stealthy way to do it. But then you, what do you do with the parachutes? And you know, there's, there's pros and cons to every way to get somewhere. Yeah. This is just another way, but really, really stealthy. Uh, you can get right up to the beach or under a pier and, and people can get out. They're either go on land themselves or Mm -hmm. or then swim underwater to go do something else um other creative those missions can be as creative creative as you want you know sensors put monitor monitor enemy harbors you know there's Mm -hmm. lots of different things that we can do did you guys ever drop out of the hell like the when you're in coronado you can see those helicopters are moving all the time but sometimes are you guys dropping out of them oh yeah into into the water and coming in that way yeah in fact right behind us there's a picture of a submarine and and 
we that's one way to get out to the submarine is is out by helicopter and fast rope down onto the deck of the submarine and then and then submerge together you mentioned buds uh, basic underwater dem- demolition seals um can you explain that to us and how that uh translated into your seal your seal career yeah so it, that's that's the entry point into to being a seal is to successfully make it through buds okay and um, it's generally like a six-month, probably a little longer than, than six-month training program, mm-hmm. broken up into three phases of a couple months each. The first phase is all about do you have the mental and physical stamina to, to make it through, and Hell Week is the latter part of that first first phase. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, you guys, you have anybody ring the bell when you were in Hell Week? Oh, God, yeah. How many? So if you look, our class started with 120 people and of that 120 people 17 of us graduated Holy cow. Uh, if you look at the graduation photo there's about 30 35 people in it and that's because it's common if you're performing well and you have a good attitude and you get mm-hmm. hurt um they, they will allow you one time to heal up and then reinsert in a class that's coming on behind you mm-hmm. um so we had you know, about a double of those 17 originals, so about 30, right. 35 uh, graduate because 17 people um, joined us as the class progressed. And it's really, really common because it's tough to make it through that level of physical mm-hmm. demand. Like an NFL season, right? It, it there's so it, Injuries are so common. Yeah. Um, so it's just kind of nature of the business. I was lucky I didn't get hurt, didn't twist an ankle, just made it made it through uh, on the first. Are shot. you still close with these seventeen individuals? I mean, do you remain in a relationship because of that? Uh, I'll always be close to to those those guys. But even uh, and then another batch that when you go into what's a SEAL platoon and you start going doing combat operations, I'm really tight with with all of those those folks. Yeah, nice. there's a there's certainly a bond though with your buds classmates. It's a bond that never breaks. All right, I can only so imagine. then you you so you take that training. And then is it like immediate deployment? Like then you're going over and and doing the deal where you're checking the boats on the northern Persian Gulf, or you're doing the that's the movies. And the reality is, you're a new guy, and you show up at your first unit, and you wait to be assigned to a deployable mm-hmm. unit. And then there's about another, um, well, there's a couple blocks of training after buds. You have another six month block of training where you go from a rough rock to a polished stone in terms of your operator. Mm-hmm. savvy and then you join a unit and and go over go overseas your career in the seals lasted 10 years correct 11 yeah 11 years you mm-hmm. have two deployments to afghanistan and two to, to the mediterranean sea could we talk a, a little bit about some of the missions whatever your li- i don't i know you can't probably tell us everything we'd like to know but is there are there things you could share with us that you were involved with that were yeah part of all that so i i got out of buds in 1994 and um, so it wasn't it wasn't for what seven more years until September 11th happened. So in that seven years, I was oh, deploying with the sealed delivery vehicles that we just talked about to the Mediterranean area. Doing there was some conflict, you know, some tension in the in in that particular part of the country world, but but not a war. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were largely training with other other special forces units from other countries and and helping posture. It, where we needed on a few occasions, um, and and then um, I, I went to graduate school from '98 to 2000, and after graduate school, I I went to SEAL Team Three. Now the interesting part of that, 
is SEAL Team 3. At that time, the area of responsibility in the world that was assigned to that team was the Middle East. And our platoon was uh, had a, a planned six-month deployment around Thanksgiving time of 2001. So the way it works uh, in the Navy, particularly the SEAL teams, you're together with the unit for two years. The last six months of that two years is an overseas deployment where you're, where you're the sharpened knife mm-hmm. ready to be used. Mm-hmm. And the year and a half leading up to that is individual training and unit training and training with other units. And then you go and it's this big rotational thing. After, and then you come home from the deployment, the leadership changes, new guys come in and you start that process all over again. So our scheduled six month deployment was Thanksgiving. Well, all of a sudden September 11th happens and accelerated our deployment. And, um, and so within not a week, cause it took a little, lo- I remember showering at home on, cause it was, I was in San Diego the airplanes hit New York City at 9 a.m. ish, so it was 6 a.m. I was getting ready to go to work and uh, went to work thinking, well, we're packing our gear and we'll either leave today or sometime soon. And we didn't leave that day because it took a while for all the logistics to yeah. sort itself out. But very soon after, landed in Kuwait, a little bit of time in Kuwait, then a little bit of time in Oman and then into mm-hmm. Afghanistan in the very, very, very early stages of, of the war. You were doing things like, and this is something I never even heard of, but non-compliant shipboardings. I assume that's a ship that's not that's not wanting your your presence to be there. You're yeah. boarding these ships uh, in, the, in the midst of uh, op- operations. Right. Um, so the ships coming out of the um, out of Iraq, which was embar- embargoed goods, they weren't allowed to be moving them. And the and they knew it, and they would put barricades on the ship, and and uh, if, if as long as they're in inland waters, we can't board them; it'd be piracy. But as soon as they go to international water, waters, they can be boarded. So there, there's this cat and mouse game of mm-hmm. these ships kind of trying to stay out of inland waters, but shallow water per- makes them go to uh, some deeper areas, which was um, international waters, and that's when we would board them knowing that they were um, trying to smuggle smuggle goods and then we control the ship and then hand it over to uh, the experts that could then search and can any uh i mean like tense times there i gotta imagine you're getting on a ship you you have no idea what the layout what they've done with this thing yeah you're armed probably oh yeah and drawn right like and then you could have an army of guys sitting behind one room, you know, in the door. I yeah, mean, that's exactly right. You generally don't know. Um, we have the ability with um, different sensors to get infrared images of them, both from the air and the ground. So you kind of have an idea if there's people manning the guardrails. Um, but generally, they knew enough that they were going to get overpowered if they tried. So they would weld themselves in. They would physically weld the doors shut. They would put barbed wire all around the edge of the ship. They would put trip wires on the ladders going up and down um, so that booby-trapped. And so it was this really, really intense time. We'd come up on, on side uh, with a small boat and a large hook on this big, giant painter's pole extended probably 30 or 40 feet up. And then hook goes a ladder, and then we all scamper up, uh, assemble on the edge, and then pull as fast as you can get to the bridge of the ship to control the ship. And, and that's generally when, uh, and oftentimes we'd have to take a, a metal cutting saw or a torch to torch through the metal and get in there. It was, it was pretty intense, 
and then you never knew what you were going to find inside. Sometimes it was just um, uh, other countries, poor, poor workers from other countries that are just on the ship to get a paycheck. And yeah. they're like, oh, okay, whatever you need. Mm -hmm. And every now and then you'd get the stubborn, real kind of jerky person that's like, F you Americans and, and, yeah. and ratchets up the intensity a little bit. So uh, my, my fearful side is imagining all this happening in daylight, but I got to think. None of it. None of it's in daylight. It's all night. All night. Yeah. So you, you don't have a darkness problem either, right? No, I don't have a darkness problem. You kind of shed the darkness problem as soon as you get in special forces. Yeah. So, yeah. so another one of your notable um, uh, operations was the Zawar Kili Cave Complex, where you won a medal, a bronze star with valor. Mm -hmm. uh, can we talk about that for a second? Yeah, that was an interesting one because um, if you remember hearing this place called Tora Bora, it was it's a right mountainous region right on the Afghan-Pakistan border, and we mm -hmm. as a country knew that that's where Bin Laden was, and we're tracking him with radio frequency um, tracking, and knew generally where he was up until the bad guys figured out that as soon as they pushed the radio button, that's what is giving their position away. Then they got a little more disciplined and and we're not using the radio and that's mm -hmm. how we so we lost him but how we, close did you get chris well they give you an idea and this was just our unit and happened to other units too um in that cave area zawar Kili caves mountainous region cave caves stretch for probably a mile and a half all intertwining into the mountains some connect some don't some were big enough for 18 wheelers to go through um so how small were some some just were you? just just one person passenger kind of thing mm -hmm. all pitch dark uh but they were using it to store ammunition they had a chow area they had a hospital area communications area so it was it was a harboring location for for taliban and al-qaeda mm -hmm. and um and on that mission early the first night we came around the corner this cold 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 like december night we came around the corner and her bushes scurrying and almost step right onto a sleeping bag that's still warm to the touch and a, bot, a pot of tea that is almost still boiling. And it's, it's freezing cold night. So that person just got up and left and we missed them by seconds. Oh, wow. That I'm convinced that person was not Bin Laden, but it was probably a, you know the, the lookout person yeah. for the yeah. larger group that was, was just up ahead. So, and that was just our unit and that happened for several other units. We were real, as a country, we were really, really, really close. But, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody tries to catch you in the woods that you grew up in, yep. oh yeah, you're not going to catch them. Yeah. That's a great point. Well, yeah. you won a bronze star with Valor for that, that little operation. That's fantastic. And then you went on and did another one uh, a few years later, another, won another bronze star uh, for a combat leadership service, typical, another typical operation type for that one as well yeah and the second time i was less of a uh in the field leader and and i was so a seal platoon is about 18 guys and the first time i was a seal platoon commander so it was myself and the, the our small group that was actually going out there the second time i was one rank higher lieutenant commander and was in charge of two seal platoons so more often i was back on the planning and operations center side of things occasionally i'd be in the field when both units needed to be there and uh, helped with the command and control but um yeah and it was interesting too to see the difference in the theater from yeah. 2001 to 2003 in 2001 it was like the wild wild west we would do a mission learn something that night pull it back into our own planning process for tomorrow and 
kind of build the build the airplane as you fly it. In 2003, I'm not saying it's worse or better, but it's just the nature of more troops and larger scale. Mm -hmm. It was more infrastructure. The chow hall was better. The toilets were better, but there was way more involved with going out to do a mission. It was a lot more coordination. You got to brief two or three people to, to get a lot more bureaucracy, a lot more bureaucracy, not quite as agile. Hey, if you know, somebody is at that gas station right now, you got to go right now. Yeah. Cause tomorrow night at five o'clock, they might not be there. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, it's, it's just a necessary evil of the nature of large scale. Well, and the internet's coming on board, right? Like communication speeding up between, you know, entities and things like that. Yeah. Before we, we wrap this, in that seal, the whole seal time, and it could be in buds too. Scariest time, like when you were, when you were like, and I don't know if you're even allowed to admit it as a seal. You know, you, I don't. Know, can you guys say you were scared? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're <laughs> all we're all human. So yeah, but the, what what was that? You know, for you, um, one particular time we were, and this wasn't even in combat. We were practicing. There's two answers to this. We in training, we were practicing shipboardings, and. Uh, one of my my mates was climbing up the caving ladder up the side of the ship and you got to picture waves and swells on a small boat next to a giant gray ship mm. and so your small boat's going up and down and up and down and so the the ladder it grows halfway up the ladder and then the boat disappears and the, and 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 so that happened and one of the guys was carrying um some tools a sledgehammer that had a sledgehammer on one side and a pick on the other side, right by his head. And he, with the boat, when the boat went up, the ladder went slack and then the boat dropped down and it went tight and it flung him off like an arrow of a bow. And he went flying and landed right in the, the small boat, right at my feet. And that pickaxe thing was like right next to his head. Oh, wow. And he just, he, he was a little out of breath and he got up and he just scampered right up the ladder. And I remember a little bit being frozen because it wasn't fear of what I just did. It was realizing that, wow, one of my really good buddies, if he'd landed outside of the boat, he would have probably drowned. If the tool had shifted a little bit, it would spiked his head. Mm. Um, and that was a really kind of scary moment for me. And then the other one in combat in Afghanistan uh, that kind of brought the, the severity of it all, we we were in close contact with the enemy, but they were like one ridge line away, and it's difficult to ju judge distance when you're when you're looking across a valley, mm -hmm. and um, and we we saw a cluster of them coming out of a a, a cave, and we start it's like in daylight. Or you got the night vision. It's right stuff. as the sun's coming up, so mm -hmm. it's early, early, early morning. Yeah, and um, and we took a couple shots at them, but it was a little farther than we could effectively tell if we were hitting them and they could hide easy um so we call in airstrikes but to tell um a jdam is the name of the bomb that that we use you got to tell it where to hit and you can tell it the exact coordinates you want to hit or you can tell it a bearing and range from where you are and we had a bearing and just a compass we didn't know how far it they were we were estimating the range and so we overestimated i'm sitting right next to the radio guy and together we're calculating this and he's like how far do you think it is i don't know let's say 2000 yards so we plugged i had the gps of our location because we did we wanted to keep it separate and because the cardinal sin of blue on blue is 
reporting, sending your own position to the aircraft to bomb. Mm. And um, so I'm look, not letting him look at my GPS, and he did in the calculations, and he punches it in. And, and JDM bombs take degrees and minutes, decimal minutes. So when you're talking small numbers like this, only the last digit changes on either the latitude or the longitude. So it's it's really puckering. Holy cow. And we so we dropped the bomb at two thousand. We estimate it's way long. We cut it in half to a thousand. And um and and then that one was long. So we cut it cut it down to seven hundred yards from us. And the aircraft says, oh, we're unable to drop. That's danger close. And they needed the ground commander's initials. And I remember thinking, wow, this is really this is no kidding for the real deal. I'm giving my initials to drop bombs that this are close. this close to us uh, to kill those guys, the enemy. Mm. And it worked. It, it, we were fine, but the, the, the blast was significant. We yeah. were like, holy cow. It rang our bell, but it rang their bell more. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, you, you, Britton made a comment about wrapping up. You're, you've, thus far, this could be a whole, our whole show, and we, we made a decision – uh, unfortunately for our l- listeners, we're going to cut this into two parts because the second half of this interview goes into when you join NASA. Uh, but first, the first half of your life is already oppressive enough for most lifetimes. But yeah. uh, you decide in 2004 uh, that you, or you're selected as a candidate by NASA. Before we end this this uh, first part, how did you get? How did you decide? And how did you get the call that NASA wanted to to deal with you? Uh, so the NASA selects astronauts about every four years. I did not know that. I met Bill Shepard, who was the first Navy SEAL to become an astronaut. Mm -hmm. And he kind of described the process to me, how you do it, where, who the selection office people are, what's the point of contacts. And, uh, and so that's what inspired me to try because I realized, like, because he had been to the Naval Academy, he had been to MIT for graduate school. And I realized, oh, well, that's, I'm kind of lining up with that same path. Maybe there's a Maybe there's a chance for me as well. I applied in 2000, um, but did not get an interview at NASA. I hadn't completed graduate school, and I hadn't had Afghan experience, uh, combat experience. Four years later, in 2004, I was a better applicant, or more well-rounded, and that's when uh, it worked out and I got called. Excellent. We will see you uh, next episode next week. Thank you, Chris Cassidy. Yeah, thanks for serving our Thank country. you, Captex Bank, for making this all happen. Thanks Thank a lot. You. My pleasure. Or two, or four.